Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this uh, evening, let's take a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study the word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a tremendous uh, privilege and encouragement to be able to gather together and just to be refreshed and strengthened by your word. We're thankful that we have your word to turn to and to focus upon, for it gives us uh, strength, it gives us encouragement, gives us examples of how believers in the past trusted in you and how they grew and matured as believers. We get to observe how you worked at the foundation of the church and how you worked in such a tremendous way to expand the uh, church and the witness of the cross during the early years of the church. Now, Father, we pray as we study tonight we might have a greater understanding of the uh, clarity of the gospel and the importance of our own spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last time we finished up with Acts chapter 14, but before we uh, go very much further, what I want to do is go back and look at a few things at the end of chapter 14, and then we're going to get into chapter 15. With chapter 15, we're actually in the center of the book in terms of verses. Almost an equal number of verses lie behind us as lie ahead of us. And so we're just about uh, halfway through our, our study of Acts, at least as far as uh, the number of verses go. It is a crucial junction because this comes, Acts chapter 15 comes at the end of the first missionary journey. And what you'll see here is something that I doubt has been pointed out to you very much. We see how even during the apostolic period, even during the time when you have direct revelation from God to the apostles, you still see a progressive understanding of doctrine among the apostles. It's not that anything changes, but they get greater clarity, especially on the gospel. The issue that comes to a head, it's not the last time, and it's not the first time, but this is a time when the uh, apostolic authority foundation in, in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders, meet together and, and conference together to discuss in a more detailed way the issues related to the Gentiles coming into the church. Now, back in Acts chapter 11, this has already started. When, when Peter in Acts 10 and Acts 11 took the gospel to uh, Cornelius, then all of a sudden that, that really shook some of their foundations because historically in Judaism they had not been um, that uh, evangelistic, let's say. They weren't involved in that much pros- uh, proselytism, at least not in uh, Judea. Out in the diaspora, yes, that was true. Evidence is that they were, that the fact today Jews do not proselyte, but that wasn't true in Second Temple, uh, Second Temple Judaism. Uh, uh, it was to a degree, and there was an insular a- uh, aspect among the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes in uh, in Judea, but not um, among those out in the in the diaspora. So uh, there's now this clear expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles, and so I titled this this lesson, uh, "Oi, what do we do about the goy?" And this is critical here because they have to define this. Even though they had already had discussions and reached one decision, which was the right decision, in Acts chapter 11, now Paul comes back from this first missionary journey when there's been this explosive outreach to Gentiles and this uh, 
extremely strong, hostile, violent reaction uh, from uh, a certain uh, percentage of the Jews in the synagogues, as we saw in our study of Antioch and Lystra and Iconium and Derbe. And so now it's becoming more and more clear that the church, the nature of this new movement is going to really focus on the Gentiles. So they, they have to raise this question, what do we do with these Gentiles? Because they come in and they have uh, a culture and background. They eat things and they do things that are offensive to us and that according to the Mosaic Law we don't think is really spiritual. And there's conflicts between a Pharisaic element within the church, and I mean that literally not using the term Pharisaic as just a synonym for uh, legalists, but by now there have been a number of Pharisees who have trusted in Christ as Savior, but they still have a holdover of legalism uh, from their uh, days before they were Christians, and so they get into conflict with the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to see this uh, this uh, development. Uh, in the first part of Acts 15, just to give you sort of an overview here, uh, it raises the problem in those first five verses, Then, and it really is summarized in uh, Acts 1-5 that some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, it's very clear these are believers, but in their post-salvation spiritual life, they've gotten into legalism. And some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And so there's this conference with the apostles and the elders, a term that refers to the pastors and uh, leaders in the, in the congregations, the pastors in the congregations in Jerusalem, the Jewish congregations, and they have a lengthy debate. Uh, verse 7 talks about there was much dispute. They really hash this out. They argue back and forth, and it's a progress in understanding. There's, God isn't just dumping on them uh, revelation to handle the problem. It's interesting. They have to wrestle with what they've been taught. They have to wrestle with Scripture and come to a conclusion. So this is, again, another important passage for understanding principles of decision-making and God's will. They don't just say, Lord, show us your will. They don't say, well, it's, it, the Lord, uh, I feel like this is what the Lord wants me to do. The Holy Spirit is directing them, but not in where they can be consciously perceptible of it. He's the invisible hand that is unseen and unfelt, but is overseeing the whole process. So they can't uh, look inside to some sort of liver quiver, some sort of emotion. They don't get a buzz because they're making the right decision. And when they do make the right decision, we'll read two or three times that they say, it seemed good to us. Notice they don't say, God revealed this to us. They don't make other statements. They say, after working through all the issues, they have to apply doctrine from the wisdom bank of their own soul to this extremely contentious, divisive issue and then um, make a decision as to how to implement their decision among the uh, congregations, both the Jewish congregations in Judea and the, the mixed congregations in Samaria and the, congreg- and the Gentile congregations. And so we'll uh, take a couple of weeks to work our way through uh, this passage focusing on what is called by some the Jerusalem Council. Now, some don't like that term because they think of later church councils. It's not a council in that more formal sense. And in one sense, it's more of an informal conference. They just have all the, all the leaders come together and hash everything out. But before we get into that, I want to go back and pick up a couple of things related to the end of the, the end of the uh, second missionary journey, because uh, I sort of uh, went through that fairly uh, quickly last time, as we did. Now, now Paul here has gone from, they went to Cyprus, then they sailed up to this area in Pamphylia, somewhere around Italia, but they don't state that specifically until his re- return voyage. 
Then they went up to Antioch, uh, known as uh, Pisidian Antioch, which is on a major east-west um, trade route. Then they were, after uh, Paul speaking in the, in the synagogue there, they eventually there's a reaction that sets in from the Jews, but the Gentiles are responsive. This eventually leads to some, some real social unrest and civil disturbance. Paul and Barnabas uh, leave. They went to Iconium. The, the Jews that were suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, rejecting the gospel in, in Pisidia, uh, chased them into Iconium, found Jews there that were rejecting what Paul's message was about Jesus as the Messiah. And so then they stirred up the crowds again. He gets uh, stoned, uh, but he doesn't uh, uh, die. And uh, that happens at Lystra. They went from Iconium, then they're chased down to Lystra. There he was stoned, uh, taken out of uh, out of the city because they thought he was dead, but he really wasn't. Then he regained consciousness. They went back into the city, which t- took a tremendous amount of courage. Then they left there. He and Barnabas went to Derby, evangelized, taught the word, and then they went back, again, showing a great dedication to the gospel ministry, his commitment to his role to establish churches among the Gentile communities and to strengthen believers in their faith. And so this is where where we are now. Uh, in Acts chapter 14, uh, let me see, I may have, did I open the wrong, what's going on here? I may have opened up the wrong slideshow. I may have, let me see. No, I got the right one. Okay. Um, I want to go down to uh, verse 21. Okay, verse 21 tells us, And when they had uh, preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now, I covered this rather briefly last time. I want to go back and point out a couple of things this time because it helps us to understand some things about the role and purpose of ministry, of the pastoral ministry. When we look at this in the English, this, of course, I'm using New King James Version. Some of the modern translations may clean it up a little bit, but but we have the phrase preaching the gospel. That needs to be clarified. We have these two participles that translated with an, in, into English with the ing ending in verses twenty in verse twenty two, strengthening the souls of the disciples, and then exhorting them. What does it mean to strengthen and exhort, and how does that relate? To verse 21, because as you can tell, looking at the at these two verses, they're one sentence, and uh, the participles strengthening and exhorting modify the main verb, which is they returned to Lystra. Returned is the main verb, so we have to be careful to exegete our way through this and evaluate the grammar, because that helps open up what they were doing a little more than what's obvious on the surface. Uh, in the English text. First of all, they preach the gospel, and once again we find our familiar word that's come over into English as evangelize, or the noun evangelism. When they preach the gospel, it's the word evangelizo, and it's an aorist middle participle. Now that's important because grammatically, uh, a participles get their a time sense, if it's an adverbial participle like this one, from the main verb. And the main verb here, returned, is an aorist tense verb. When you have an aorist participle with an aorist tense verb or with any verb, the action of the participle comes before the action of the main verb. A present tense participle comes the actions at the same time as the main verb, a future tense participle comes uh, after the main verb. Okay, so just basically before, during, and after. Um, and so when they preach the gospel, notice the English there translates it as a almost simultaneous action using the, the time word when. 
Now, this, I think it's accurate. It's a temporal participle, but an aorist participle precedes the action of the main verb, so it should be after they had evangelized the city, after they had proclaimed the gospel to the city. It would be the best translation here. After they had proclaimed the gospel to the city, and then the next participle is the word for making many disciples, making disciples from mathetuo, which means to make a disciple or a student of someone, or if you translate it in a little more active sense, it's to teach or instruct someone. So they're doing two things here. First of all, they're, they're evangelizing, and secondly, they're instructing those who have responded to evangelism. This is the mission of the church, the universal church. Jesus said to the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. So they're fulfilling that function of the great, what's called the Great Commission. They're making disciples of all the nations. And then in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, it goes on to identify how that disciple-making process goes on by baptizing. Now, that doesn't mean that they're saved by baptizing, but in the early church, it was understood that if you trusted Christ as Savior, there wasn't anything to hinder you from water baptism. That was assumed that you would be baptized immediately. It didn't do anything to you. It didn't make you more saved, less saved. It didn't make you more sanctified or more spiritual, but it was an object lesson to communicate the reality of positional truth. And so if when people are saved, there's water baptism, they immediately have the opportunity to be taught the significance of being baptized by the Holy Spirit because water baptism depicts the identification of the believer with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ so that we are now raised to new life in Christ. And by having new life in Christ, as Paul explained in Romans 6, that old life of being a slave to the sin nature has been broken. We still have a sin nature, but we no longer are under that tyrannical relationship uh, where the sin nature is the only master. So when Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and 20 says that we are to make disciples by baptizing, that's summarizing the whole evangelism operation by baptizing and teaching. That's the second. That's what you do after salvation. Uh, sadly, there are too many churches, too many congregations where all the pastor does is evangelize. And there's never anybody telling them what to do after you're saved. So we end up with a lot of spiritual bed babies who are just in, the, in, in a spiritual nursery and nobody seems to know how to get them out of the nursery, how to how to potty train them, how to teach them to change their diapers, which metaphorically is confession of sin, uh, cleaning yourself up after you make a mess from carnality in your life. It's just such a nice, picturesque little metaphor. So what the apostles are doing here, what Luke is enforcing here in reminding everybody is they're doing what they were told to do. They're going out, they're giving everybody the gospel, and then they're teaching them. So... They, after they had evangelized the city and, and made uh, disciples or taught, uh, taught disciples or instructed the believers, that's the idea there, they then returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Even though there was going to be a lot of persecution possibly, maybe it would cost them their life. There were those there who hated them and who obviously had already demonstrated that they were angry enough to kill Paul. Uh, they had stoned him in, in Lystra. So they head back. And then we have the next verse, which in English appears um, sort of disconnected, I would say, to verse 21. And so we have to see how that, how that sets up. The first word there for strengthening is the Greek word episterizo. An episterizo is, again, a participle. We have all these little participles here, so this is a nice night to review some grammar. Participles without an article modify the verb. They're, they're adverbial participles. If the article is there, in English you know this, an article before a word means that that word is a what? It's a noun. You don't have articles with verbs. Um, 
unless it's a some kind of a participle. So here you have an adverbial participle. It's modifying the main verb, which is returned. So they returned strengthening. So the question is, how does strengthening relate to returning? Well, returning is a past tense verb. It's an aorist tense. And now you have a present tense participle. Now, what did I say? Past tense comes before. Present tense happens roughly at the same time. Future tense happens after. So they returned to uh, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So that covers a broad spectrum of time, all summarized in one word. Uh, while, so indicating at the same time, while or as they were strengthening, uh, as they were strengthening, in English we trans- would translate to get up that, get that ongoing action sense, we would use a um, uh, sort of an imperfect uh, past tense of the verb, but we, we mean it as a continuous action at the same time. They were strengthening, as they returned, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. So that's the main idea, and it has that idea of to strengthen, to support, to build up. It, they're, they're, they're teaching them the word. How do we know that? They're not just strengthening them by giving them a hug and holding their hand or giving them a motivational talk and telling them that uh, how wonderful they are and they can do it and God loves them and just a lot of empty type sayings. They're, they do it, as we see that's explained in the very next uh, participle, exhorting. And exhorting is, a pre, again, a present active participle, but this participle should be understood as an instrumental participle. So they return to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch uh, as they were strengthening the souls of the disciples by exhorting them. There shouldn't be a comma there in English. That, that should, they, they strengthen by exhorting them. How do you strengthen? By challenging them with the word. They're teaching them the word and then challenging them to obey the word and to transform their thinking uh, by what the word says. So they're exhorting them to continue in the faith. Now, that involves a couple of things. First of all, the word the faith there isn't just meaning to continue to believe in Jesus. It's not continue in faith but continue in the faith. And when you have the article in front of the noun for faith, it refers to a set body of beliefs. So uh, we might talk about someone's faith. Uh, What faith are you? Well, I'm Episcopal. I believe in uh, the Book of Common Prayer, or I'm Roman Catholic. I believe in the the, uh, church, the dogma of the church, the the Holy Fathers plus the Scripture, or I'm I'm of the Baptist faith, the Baptist faith. You believe in the Baptist faith and confession. Well, we use the word faith as a term that refers to what a person believes, the entire body of doctrine that a person uh, uh, holds to. And so Paul is saying we're challenging them to continue in the faith, that is, continue to hold to sound doctrine, continue to under, study and understand the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles, and to continue to grow and mature on the basis of that set body of beliefs. And so they challenge them to continue because the, 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 the threat, the temptation for believers is just to give up. And the word here for continue is a form of the word minnow, which is the word Jesus uses in John 15 when he says, abide in me. It's a word that's related to fellowship, to continue in fellowship, to continue walking uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so he, they're challenged to continue in the faith, and they are teaching related to the kingdom of God that we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. And I think this is interesting because as we studied way back when we first started Acts, there are people today that think that we are in some form of the kingdom. And in Acts, the issue is repent so the kingdom will come. The kingdom is a kingdom, a literal, physical, geographical, political kingdom on the earth headed up by the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus ascended, as we studied, when Jesus ascended, according to Revelation 3.22, he's now seated not on the throne, not on his throne. He's not the king yet. 
He's sitting on his father's throne at the right hand of the father. And according to Daniel 7, he is waiting for the Ancient of Days to give him the the high sign to go take the kingdom. So he hasn't become the king yet. And so we have a lot of really sloppy language today where people talk about doing, let's go do something for the kingdom and, and worshiping our king, Jesus Christ. Well, he's not our king yet. He's not the king yet. He's not going to assume the, the crown and be crowned as king until the second coming. Now, we sing some a couple of hymns that are, uh, the technical term is proleptic. They're looking to a future time, and they're, and we, we are, through a sort of metaphorical sense, entering into that experience of the saints and the angels at that future time when the Lord Jesus Christ is crowned as king. And what are those two hymns? Crown him with many crowns and all hail the power. Now, it's interesting, when we first started the church nine years ago, we were singing All Hail the Power. Now, one of the men that was initially with the church, I'm not picking on him, I'm not picking his name, but I've heard this from people, so he's not the only one, said, well, he really took umbrage. That means he got a little irritated about singing All Hail the Power. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd because he comes out of Barack Church, and for 50 years or 40 years, they sang all hail, well, before Bread of Heaven came along, I guess, so 25 years, they sang All Hail the Power, the coronation version, as the, uh, with the offering every single Sunday. And it wasn't rejected because of doctrinal content. So sometimes people, when they sing hymns, take things in hymns, remember hymns are poetry, Take hymns to literally. Hymns are poetry. They utilize figurative language. So uh, sometimes uh, you, they put themselves in another position in history, and so that's what those two hymns do. They, they put us into that time frame of the future event when Jesus returns and will be crowned as king. Now, there are a lot of contemporary hymns because hymns, reflect the the hymns of hymn writers in any time period in history reflect the theological shallowness or depth of the, the, the church at that time in history. Now, sometimes people today, when they talk about music, get into these uh, debates over, well, you just like old music because uh, you're an old guy. And you don't like contemporary music because that's just new and that's not your generation. But our generation wants to sing music like our generation likes. And my response to that is, how come you got so arrogant? No generation in 2,000 years of Christianity has said they want to sing their generation's music. Not once. It's not old versus new. Because there's a lot of old stuff that was garbage. 19th century revivalism had an extremely shallow theology. And a lot of the revivalistic hymns that came out of the revivalistic movement in the mid-19th century were pretty shallow, and their theology was uh, uh, pretty pathetic. And just because it's old doesn't make it good, and just because it's new doesn't make it bad. Unfortunately, very little that's written new uh, elevates itself to the quality because the theology of the modern church is so pathetically shallow that those who have the ability to write lyrics can't write lyrics of great depth because the shallowness of their own spiritual life, which unfortunately in many cases they think is is great depth. I remember you know, every now and then somebody says something and you think, wow, that's that's just a flash, uh, uh, obvious flash, or flash of the obvious, sudden flash of the obvious. There, I was with uh, Ed Heinsen in Turkey. Ed, for those of you who don't know, is a longtime pastor, brilliant man, PhD um, from Grace Seminary and from I think University of South Africa, and he was the uh, assistant to the president of Liberty University for many years when. Um, Jerry Falwell was the president of Liberty, and, and Ed's probably late 60s now, sharp guy, very bright. And um, 
we were traveling in Turkey. I was teaching Genesis at the time. That was on that uh, Greece-Turkey trip about 2003 or 2004. And uh, Tommy Ice was going through the whole trip with his earbuds in from his iPod. And, and uh, one day, Ed, Ed said, what in the world are you listening to? He said, I'm listening to Robbie teach Genesis. He's, you know, he, he took a whole hour to teach through the documentary hypothesis, and then he's got 12 lessons on Genesis 1. Ed said, what? He taught the documentary about the documentary hypothesis at church, and he said, Tommy replied, as Tommy would, well, if they don't, people don't hear it at church, where are they going to hear it? They, most people don't go to Bible college or seminary, so where else would they hear it? And that, Ed kind of went, coming from a Baptist background, it kind of went, hmm, well, that kind of makes sense. And then later, he and I were in the swimming pool together, and he made a comment. He said, well, he, he said uh, this was kind of an awakening for him that somebody would teach at this kind of depth. He said, well, you got to, he said, I, I realize there's a place for that. But he said, uh, he said, you know, I, I just always preach in Baptist churches, and Baptists are wonderful people, but their theology is a mile wide and an inch deep, and they think it's an inch wide and a mile deep. And that's not just picking on Baptists. There are some that don't fit that mode, but there, that fits a lot of Christians, unfortunately. They think they know a lot more than they do, and uh, they really need to, to learn to study the Word. And that's a problem we have with music today, is it's so shallow because we, have, we think we know more than we do. And we haven't produced a culture that can produce the kind of lyrics to music that they that they had at one time. And so um, what, what Paul is teaching here is the importance of challenging people to continue and press on in doctrine, to paraphrase it, to study the Word, to study the Word and not give up in studying the Word. And he, and he explains that what he, the teaching is summarized, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I bet if I went out to just about any group of Christians and said, what does it mean to enter the kingdom? They would say it means to get saved. It means to enter heaven. Now, we've talked about inheriting the kingdom in the past in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, and Galatians uh, chapter 5, verses uh, uh, 18, 19, 20, 21. If you do all those works of the flesh, you won't inherit the kingdom. Uh, those passages, but... I made the point that there's a difference between entering the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom. But here, uh, Paul's making a, uh, using it a little different way than he has other places. It's, it's obviously not talking a bit about salvation. Entering the kingdom for, for this passage has the idea of, exp, uh, of preparing to serve in the kingdom. That's his idea here. Now you say, well, Robbie, how do you say that? Entering the kingdom, it seems, in other places means to get saved, might mean to get saved. How can you say that here? And I'll show you it's in the next verse. And once again, it's based on grammar. In Acts 14.23, we read, so when they, that's Paul and Barnabas, when they had appointed elders, that's pastors for every church, and prayed with fasting, they commanded, they commended them to the Lord in whom, look at that last phrase, in whom they had believed. Now, it's not as clear in the English, but in the, in the Greek, that verb there is pistuo, and it's a pluperfect active. Now, a perfect tense verb means completed action in the past, and it's emphasizing the present results of a completed past action. Pluperfect gets a little more difficult to understand. It's talking about the past results of a completed past action. Okay, Perfect is the present results of completed past action. Pluperfect intensifies that. It's talking about the past results of completed past action. And the point is that they had already completed their action of believing a long time before the events of verses 22 and 23, and it had results from that belief before verses 22 and 23. So their justification, salvation, had occurred the first time Paul went through town. 
They were already saved. They were already believed. Now he comes back and he's encouraging them to stay the course because through many tribulations you're going to enter the kingdom. He's teaching the same thing that he says in Romans, uh, that we've been studying in Romans 8, uh, 8, 17, in relation to inheritance, that there are two kinds of inheritance, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. See, suffering with him is going through tribulations, through many tribulations entering into the kingdom, uh, kingdom of God. So it's not getting saved because the context is talking about the fact that they're already been saved. They don't ha- they're not getting saved again through going through tribulations. That would be a work salvation. They, they, they were already saved in the past. They already had some spiritual growth in the past. That's what's talking about the past completed results of past completed action. And now, uh, they have to be encouraged to stay the course so that they can enter the kingdom through many tribulations. That is, so that they can enter into their full responsibilities in the kingdom. So that's his, that's his point. Now, uh, just highlighting some of the things at the end when they appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting. Now, I talked, I'll talk about elders. Uh, the term, you have three terms in the New Testament for church leader, for, for the pastor. One is the term bishop or overseer. Uh, that has to do with an author- focusing on the leader in terms of his authority and his his responsibilities. The el- the term elder focuses on his maturity, and the term pastor teacher functions uh, focuses on his responsibility to feed the sheep and, and to lead. So those three terms are used. And I'll show you this as we continue this our study in Acts, where where these terms are used interchangeably uh, in 1 Timothy, uh, in Titus, and in Acts, and that gives us our understanding. This is talking basically about the, the pastoral responsibility. So when they had appointed pastors or elders in every church, prayed with fasting, we talked about the doctrine of fasting, that nowhere is this commanded in Scripture. It's clear that people in the Old Testament fasted, people in the New Testament fasted, They fasted, as I said before, for a number of reasons. They fasted because they were putting all of their focus and intensity into prayer. Because eating was a time-consuming activity in the ancient world. Uh, Eating was something that that you had to go out and, and wring the neck of the chickens or you had to slaughter the goats, and then you had to skin the goats, and then you had to prepare the meal. You had to build the fire. You had it took uh, hours to prepare meals. You didn't just run down through the drive-through uh, at, at the local uh, uh, lamb sandwich shop and pick up lunch. That would take maybe ten minutes out of your day, and the rest of the time you could focus on prayer. No, eating took up and consumed a tremendous amount of time and energy. So rather than eating, they focused their attention on prayer. It wasn't something that gave impetus or strength to their prayer, that they weren't being more spiritual because they fasted and those who didn't were less spiritual. It's just showing their commitment to pray for specific things at a specific time and to not let anything else distract them uh, during that time. And then the last part of the uh, the chapter, verses uh, 24, 25, and 26, just give us sort of a wrap-up and summary of their uh, travels back to Antioch. Uh, and so from there, verse 26, from there they sail to Antioch. Uh, this is Antioch of uh, Syria. Uh, and they come to, located here in roughly uh, northwest Syria, to the church there, which is the birthplace of... Uh, of the term Christian, that was the first place they were called. The followers of Christ were called uh, were called Christians, and so that brought us to the end last time of chapter um, chapter fourteen, verse twenty six. There they they came to Antioch. This is roughly forty nine or fifty uh, A.D. And then verse twenty seven, we, we read that. Um, 
When they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, that's a critical phrase for understanding the flow of what's happening uh, historically in Acts, that now the door is fully open to the Gentiles. When the church first started in Acts 2, it was all Jewish. Acts 3, it's all Jewish, all the way up to Acts 10, when Peter is finally uh, thumped on the head by God to go take the gospel to Cornelius, uh, that's the first time that, that, that the church opens its door to Gentiles, and this is kind of a, sends sort of a tidal wave through the Jewish community. Uh, what do we do with all these goy? And so they, they have to figure this out because Gentiles didn't do things like Jews did. Jews still lived within a pretty insular uh, uh, community and society. So now this, open, this, this last phrase in verse 27, opening the door of faith to the Gentiles, is a transitional statement to uh, foreshadow the focus of the next chapter, which is the Jerusalem Council. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples, that is, those who were uh, had made themselves learners or students of the Scripture. Now we get into the next chapter, and before we do that, I want to put this little timeline up here that I'm working on. I haven't gotten it all straightened out yet. There's some problems with some of my numbers here. I'm still trying to work through this. But roughly in A.D. 35, about two years after Jesus is crucified, Paul is saved. And I was working through a chronology I've used in the past, and I just realized I've got a problem because of uh, the 14 years between two of Paul's uh, visit. So I've got to go back and, and look at that a little more and clean that up before next week or maybe in the next couple of weeks. Paul is saved, and right after that, he makes a private personal visit to Jerusalem. That's his first trip to Jerusalem. Then about five years later, we have Peter Peter's call by, by direction by God to take the gospel to Cornelius and the Gentiles in AD 40. Now during that time, from about uh, 36 or 37 on, Paul has gone back to Tarsus. He's out of the picture, and he goes through a period of time when we don't know what's going on. Then in the, approximately the spring of 43, as the church in Antioch is growing and expanding, Barnabas realizes that he needs to go get Paul. That, that Paul, he needs some help. They need some help there. Paul's the man to come. And so he goes and gets Paul in Tarsus and brings him to Antioch. Then the next major event uh, in Acts 11.30 is what's referred to as the famine visit. This is after there's a prophecy by uh, Agabus that there's going to be a famine. This is during the time of when Claudius was emperor. If you saw the uh, series I, Claudius, some years ago, that's, that's that time period when Claudius was the emperor. There's a famine in the Middle East, and so uh, offerings are taken up in Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas take offerings to Jerusalem. That's in Acts 11.30. That's his second trip to uh, to Jerusalem. This is what we ha- we're trying to figure out how these things fit together. Then they go on their first missionary journey after that from roughly 47 to 49 A.D. And then after that is when they have the Jerusalem Council, and that would be Paul's third trip to Jerusalem. Now, I- I'm not sure on some of these dates now because there's the first part of Acts, I mean, of Galatians 2 says it's after 14 years, Paul went up to Jerusalem, and that doesn't doesn't fit some of this. But this is this is the order of events. I'm just not sure the exact years on a couple of these, uh, based on some of the chronologies that I was looking at. And I'll try to straighten that out in the, in the future. Um, so in Acts 15:1 we read, and certain men. So these aren't leaders. These aren't. Uh, this isn't a deputation sent from Jerusalem to Antioch. It's not uh, official. It's just. Uh, some men who are have their own theological uh, agenda uh, leave Jerusalem and they go to Antioch. Certain men came down from Judea. Now, remember, when in, in, in Western thinking, we think north is always up. We go up, we go north. When we're going south, we go down. 
But in the Middle East mind, up is in up and down or elevation terms. Jerusalem is about 3,500 feet, and it's relatively high. And so if you're traveling from Jerusalem to anywhere, you're going downhill. And so you always go down from Jerusalem. Judea has the hill country of Judea. And so when you go to, for example, Caesarea, which is on the seacoast, or you go up to uh, up through Tyre, Phoenicia, up to Antioch on the seacoast, you're going down from 3,500 feet down to sea level. So if you go from uh, Antioch to Jerusalem, you're going to go up to Jerusalem. doesn't matter whether you're going north, south, east, or west. So that's, that's how that works. So these men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, and this is the summary of what they taught, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And this is reiterated in verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees, uh, this is the first time they're identified as Pharisees. Now, they were believers, but they were coming out of a Pharisaical legalistic background. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed that would these didn't include Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, but Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were both Pharisees who became secret believers during the life of Christ. So after the resurrection, there were a number of Pharisees that responded to the gospel, a, a large number. So of that number, of which Paul was one, uh, there were those who held on to some of their legalistic background. So verse 5 says, Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now what I want you to recognize here is we look at this through certain theological lenses. And I want you to get rid of the theological lens you look through, which is, a, the, which is the New Testament, which looks at this as this is legalism. And I want you to get a little different perspective on this. Let's think about this as if you were an extremely patriotic first century Jew. What had happened in your history? Back in the, in the period after about approximately 320 B.C., this is when, after Alexander had conquered most of the Middle East, Alexander the Great died, and the Greek Empire was then subdivided among four of his generals. And then for the next uh, 200 years or so, there's a lot of fighting between uh, the, the Ptolemies down in Egypt and the Seleucids in Syria, and that's the main thing that concerns us is the, the battles back and forth between the Ptolemies and the Syrians. And if you look at the map, um, let me back it up to the map. If you look at the map, you have Syria up there in the north, and then Israel, and then down south, which would be off the map, you have Egypt, where the Ptolemies were. What's in between? Israel. And so they're fighting back and forth. Who's going to control uh, Israel, who's going to control that, that piece of real estate, which sits on the crossroads of most of the major trade routes that went through the Middle East. So it has tremendous economic value. Well, the Ptolemies controlled the area for the first part of that period, and then the Seleucids took over in the, um, in the period in the um, sort of the early 100s, you know, about 190, 180, 170, and you get the really evil... Uh, Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a type or picture of the Antichrist from the Old Testament, and we see that in our study in Daniel and Daniel chapter eight. He went and he got was so horrible and, and hated the Jews so much that he had a pig sacrificed on the uh, uh, on the uh, altar in the temple, and 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 pig's blood scattered on the um, inside the Holy of Holies, and he desecrated the temple. And he, they passed the Syrians passed laws that made it illegal for Jews to circumcise their male children. Uh, it was a death penalty offense to hold on to copies of the Torah. If anybody was found with a copy of the Torah, then they would be killed. If anybody was caught circumcising their male infants, then then they would be killed and executed. The baby would be killed. Their their goal was to completely obliterate Judaism. Well, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was was circumcision, 
And in Second Temple Judaism, circumcision also became a symbol of someone of being obedient to the to the Mosaic law. And so we have a uh, we have a passage out of one of the apocryphal books. These are good history. They're not inspired by God. They're part of the Old Testament period, but they're not part of the Old Testament unless you're Roman Catholic, Syrian Orthodox, uh, Greek Orthodox, Marianite, a few other uh, Eastern branch branches of Christianity. Uh, they accept these as, as Scripture, but the Jews, they're really part of the Old Testament. Jews never accepted any of these books, known as the Apocrypha, as Scripture. But Jerome in the 3rd century, who translated uh, the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament into, uh, he, he sort of sequestered himself away, not financially, but he sequestered himself away socially uh, from uh, the crowds at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, and over a period of years he translated the Hebrew Old Testament, Greek New Testament into Latin. And that Latin was the language of the people, the common language. The word for common in Latin is vulgar, and so it was called the Vulgate. And he included the Apocrypha in his translation because he thought it was good history. In his introduction to the Bible, he said specifically, these aren't part of the inspired Word of God, but they're, it's good information, good history. People ought to know what's there. Well, nobody ever reads the introduction in a book. So it wasn't long before people assumed that it was part of the Bible, and they weren't. But in 1 Maccabees 1, 11 to 15, we get a sense of what was happening in Israel. People were wanting to give up their Judaism. They were losing their identity as Jews. This, is, this happened several times in history. The first time it happened in history was back in Genesis. Back in Genesis, around Genesis chapter 38, where you have the episodes with, uh, with Jacob's sons, they're, they're uh, marrying Canaanites, they're living with the Canaanites, moving into the Canaanite cities, and they're just about to lose their identity as a distinct people of God. So what did God do? What God did was he, he had, had, uh, had Joseph sold into slavery. Uh, Joseph ends up down in Egypt so that eventually God can promote him to be the right hand of Pharaoh and then brings a famine on the Middle East so that everybody's suffering, but it forces Jacob and his boys to go to Egypt to get food, and God's prepared Joseph to provide food for them, brings the whole clan down to Egypt where they are the victims of some of the most oppressive racism in history, and they're isolated and insulated up in the land of Goshen so that they can remain racially and ethnically distinct from the Egyptians until they grow large enough to be an, uh, have their own identity, and then God brings them out of Egypt at the Exodus and takes them back to the Promised Land. It happens again as they apostatize uh, during the time of, uh, of, the first, of the first temple, and God has to bring discipline upon them, and then it, it, it happens when they, when they return from the, from the uh, uh, capti- Babylonian captivity because they, they just get tired. Uh, uh, modern Jews have a saying, you know, we're the chosen people, but God, why don't you choose somebody else? Uh, they get tired of having to go through everything, so why does God bring all this suffering upon us? And, um, and in this second temple period, they, there were all these Jews at the time of uh, about 175 B.C. who just wanted to give up their, their Judaism, and, and they, they were going Greek. They were becoming Hellenized uh, from Helen of Troy, uh, a term for the Greeks. They were becoming Hellenized, and they just wanted to give it all up, and that's what this passage in Maccabee shows. In those days went there out of Israel wicked men, See, they're Jews, they're out of Israel, wicked men, they're apostates, Jewish apostates, who persuaded many, saying, let's go and make a covenant with the heathen, that's the Syrians, the Greeks, uh, Greek culture, with the heathen that are round about us, for since we departed from them, we have had much sorrow. We're just going through all of this uh, punishment and discipline. Let's just, let's just give it all up, let's compromise, and let's just go Greek. So uh, that's the idea. So this device pleased them well. And then certain of the people were so forward herein that they went to the king who gave them license to do after the ordinances of the heathen. This is the, the, the head of the Jews, 
at the time, and he was compromising as well. Whereupon they built a place of exercise at Jerusalem. They built like an Olympic stadium. And remember, the Greek custom was to exercise in the nude. And this was, and in Judaism, you got to remain covered up. So this created a huge controversy and among the Jews there, and the whole culture is just polarizing and imploding because of this large number of Jews who were compromising with Greek heathenism. And so they made themselves uncircumcised. It's real obvious when you're out there as a male exercising who's Jewish and who's not. So they were trying to figure out some way to disguise it. Now, I'm not going to go any further than that. I'll leave it to your imagination how they made themselves uncircumcised. But, see, the issue is circumcision was a patriotic act. It indicated that you were a uh, devoted to the Abrahamic covenant, you were devoted to the tradition and history of the fathers, and it was a sign that you weren't assimilating to the enemy. You weren't becoming a cultural traitor. And so this is the background. So when we get into the first century and we see this emphasis on the Pharisees uh, and the Sadducees and the Jews on, on the importance of circumcision, we need to cut them a little bit of slack because they see this as a sign of, of, of allegiance to their historical devotion to the covenant of Abraham and Moses and that we're not uh, being a traitor to our culture and our background and our history as Jews. So this was, this was a major thing for them. And so they're bringing all of that history to the table. It's not just a theological issue. For many of them, it is a, a sense of ethnic pride and uh, racial pride and historic pride that we must maintain uh, being uh, circumcised because we, we can't just lose our cultural ethnic identity and just, just get lost among the, uh, the sea of the Gentiles. So... That gives us a little bit of, of uh, historical background uh, leading up to our, our statement on uh, chapter 15. Next time when I come back, we need to get into some of the background going back to Acts 11. And the first time this conflict uh, kind of percolated up to a boil. And then we'll look at Galatians chapter 2 because we have to understand how that fits in. Basically, when we get into this, what we'll discover is we have to fit this with these two other passages, with Acts 11.30, and we have to fit it with um, Galatians 2.10. Now, there's basically four positions. There are four positions. One is that the visit of Galatians 2.10 is identified with Acts 11.30 and Paul's second trip to Jerusalem. That's, I believe that's the correct view. The second view is that Galatians 2, 1 through 10 is really talking about this event, this trip to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Then we always have the position of the liberals. Liberals just basically don't pay attention to facts. They think everything is made up by everybody else, whether you're liberal theologically or liberal politically. You don't want to pay attention to details. I loved it this last week um, when our president uh, was speaking last Friday out in uh, California and talked about the fact that the shooter at Newtown used an automatic weapon. Either he's an idiot or he's just trying to uh, use debater's techniques to shape the argument in his favor without paying attention to facts. But the AR, if he used an AR, there's a lot of debate over whether the shooter in Newtown actually used a rifle. Most people who've analyzed the videotape say he only took pistols in. He did not take a rifle in. And if he took a rifle in, uh, it was a semi-automatic, not an automatic. It was not a military weapon at all. It was a, 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 a semi-automatic weapon. And so there's a lot of lies being told by the left but it's not any different from the theological lies of the theological left. They just come along here and say, well, Luke just shaped the history to fit his theology. So the third view is none of this actually happened historically. Quit trying to figure out how all the parts fit together because there really weren't any parts to begin with. So that's the third view, the theological liberal view. And then there's the other view that says, well, we're not given enough details, so quit trying to put it all together. Let's just get the big idea 
details don't matter, and let's go ahead. So those are the four views. I think the first view is the right one. This really isn't the Galatians 2 view, but what we have to do is look at this because it helps us see the flow of how the apostles increase their understanding of the issues related to the purity of the gospel as faith alone, not faith plus circumcision, faith plus works, faith plus anything else. It's not that they didn't understand, but it becomes, you'll see it becomes progressively clear how they have to understand the issues related to the Gentiles and, and circumcision. And so there's a lot of uh, application from that, and we'll start looking through that uh, next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through these things this evening to realize the importance of the study of your word, that the only way in which we grow and mature as believers is through the study of your word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we have to study the word, we have to wrestle with it, we have to come to understand what it says, and the Holy Spirit works, uh, as it were, covertly in and through that process in ways that we don't perceive uh, uh, rationally or empirically at the time, only when we are uh, well past it do we look back and come to understand that, yes, indeed, God the Holy Spirit was working, but we weren't uh, uh, conscious of it uh, at the time. We just do what we can, studying your word and implementing it. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to stay the course, as Paul says, to uh, remain in the faith, continue in the faith, because the king, we enter the kingdom of heaven through many tribulations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.